We've all heard about artificial intelligence or AI and machine learning, but what do those terms actually mean for businesses today? Obviously, we know companies want to collect as much information as possible on their customers. That is the whole point of loyalty programs. But how do companies make sense of the data they collect? Gathering it and organizing it is one thing, though the main goal, of course, is to interpret it and make recommendations. If you're a big retailer, say a grocery store or fashion brand, you want to know what the data tells you in terms of what to order, when to order it, how to price it, and where to place it in the store or online site to drive the most sales. Answering these questions for as many retailers as possible is what propels Kerry Liu. His AI company, RubiCloud, has grown from being a tiny Toronto startup to a global force with operations in London, Hong Kong, Ireland, Toronto, and across the US. You have to get your first big customer to even earn the right to play in the game. My name is Kerry Liu. I'm the co-founder and CEO of RubiCloud. As regular listeners know, what it takes to be an entrepreneur or an innovator is the underlying theme of this podcast, but rarely are the key ingredients so plainly expressed as carried as in our conversation today. Before we even had a chance to delve into the details of how he launched and rapidly grew RubiCloud, he makes clear what he sees as the central driver behind building any company. I think a part of it is also every tech entrepreneur is trying to overcome their own version of insecurity. I think if we're being very honest about ourselves, tech, uh, all entrepreneurs are, are all obviously insecure in some way. Uh, all people are in some way. And depending on your background, you have some level of insecurity you're trying to overcome. People hear the word insecurity and, and it has negative connotations. But I, but I also think, you know, fear can be your friend as yes. well in, in terms of uh, instilling and ensuring a degree of discipline. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the ingredients that are required, mm -hmm. obviously there's the confidence, there's knowledge, uh, there's the business idea, yeah. there's also capital, and then yeah. there's there's people. But if there's sort of an order of priority, like mm -hmm. what would be the number one, two, and three? Yeah, I think the the first priority is just the desire to want to go and do it. Yeah. And the willingness to take that leap, right? Because you really don't know where it's going to end up. It might end up as a complete failure a year from now, or it might completely change your life like it has for me and uh, end up putting you in a position where you can build a company, you know, kind of beyond your initial uh, kind of imagination in terms of the type of industry, the size of the business and the scope of what you could build. Uh, I think the first thing is just this this desire to go and do it. I know it's a very kind of subjective answer. Yeah. The second thing I do think capital is really, really important. I think uh, I was talking to, so I talked to a lot of, uh, uh, I do angel investing as well now, and I also talk to a lot of founders at different stages, uh, whether you know they're at CDL or they're in kind of the early seed stage or wherever, or they're just kind of at that concept of about to take that jump. I think capital is really, really important. And for capital, I come at it from a very practical lens. You know, from from my personal perspective, I needed to be in a position where I could invest enough time and money to really go after an initial thesis with conviction for a full 15 months. Okay. And worked basically backwards from that 15 months with a cash flow, right? So I 
co-founded the company with two other people. I didn't draw a salary. Uh, and we basically, I sat down, I said, what's it going to cost for 15 months to fund this thing? Uh, whether it be kind of the living costs for, you know, uh, the other co-founders or the legal costs or the kind of hosting costs. Or I, I, we put together a very, very kind of practical 15-month cash flow. And I had to be in a position where I was willing to fund that. Um, it wasn't a lot of money, but, you know, everybody's going to have a different version of that. And I think you have to treat day one like a realistic uh, kind of capital exercise. And if you aren't willing to do that, then I don't think you've actually instilled good discipline from day one as as a founder. Why was retail the opportunity that you yeah. saw the, the greatest potential? Yeah, so I, I come at that from a few different perspectives. The, the first one is just from like the consumer uh, perspective, right? Retail is the largest sector for the economy, right? Yeah. It's the majority of our GDP. Um, if you look at the kind of the the kind of G7 nations, there's about $8 trillion of retail spending. If you add in the developing world, which is growing really, really quickly, you're very quickly into the kind of north of $12 trillion of spending. Uh, and that's on retail goods. That doesn't include like, you know, uh, restaurants, or it doesn't include um, travel or your cars or things like that. That's just literally physical retail goods to, you know, to, to go on with your kind of live your life, yeah. right? So the, it's the largest sector in the world. That That's the first and most important thing. But it's also the sector that the consumer is driving the most change. If you think about the expectation of what we have as an individual consumer on the retailer now, it is fundamentally different today than it was five, six, seven years ago. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? How is it? How is the consumer driving it in a way that five or six years ago was less yeah. impactful? So, so I think there's a few things. One is we expect a certain level of familiarity uh, and experience from that retailer that that we draw parallels from the tech world on. You know, when I log on to, I, I always draw that experience where, you know, if you share a Netflix account with your, you yes. know, with your partner or your friend or whoever, and you accidentally log into their Netflix account, or they've logged in as you, and the algorithm completely changes kind of the, the kind of recommendations, it's uncomfortable to you suddenly. You're like, wait, you know, I, I do that all the time where I'll accidentally log into our, uh, my sister-in-law's account, that's all kids movies. I'm like, this makes yes. no sense. Yes. That same experience we expect now from our retailers when we have a loyalty program, right? When we're willingly giving them information about what we're spending with them on every single week around uh, kind of grocery and health and beauty and day-to-day -day things. And we spend, you know, say $1,000 a month on baby products and we come home and we don't get recommendations on baby products. It makes no sense anymore. So that familiarity that experience of knowing us and customizing that experience for us, we expect that from retail as well but now. That that certainly applies uh, in, from an online perspective, which of course is a yeah. huge part of the retail experience, but but less so when you're walking into a store, which of course then it, it, yeah. it generalized. Yeah, and then when offering. we walk into a store now, you know, the, the before the model was Retailers put, retailers put stores in pockets of densely populated people. And there is this kind of simple formula, right? How many people live there? And you can kind of extrapolate the, pop, uh, the kind of profitability of a store based off of that. Now, it's clear that retailers, for the, for the most part, have too many stores. Um, and there's going to be fewer physical stores. But it's not going to change the need to have physical stores. Depending on the vertical, whether it's home or electronics or grocery, people still need to physically go to a store to experience it. But that 
two things have to change. The experience of going from online to offline has to be very seamless. If you look at grocery, buying online, picking up in store, or buying online, having it delivered to your home, or going into the store and having access to products that aren't available online because they're super fresh or whatever they may be, that has to be seamless, and it isn't right now. Yeah, um, Buying online and picking up in store and waiting for 20 minutes to pick up your groceries, that's a terrible experience itself. But the other parts also have to be true. When you walk into a store now, the store ex uh, associate has to have way more information at their fingertips. The store can't be quote unquote stupid anymore. You can't go into a kind of home store and not be able to find out information about the products that you're buying for your home. So that product information needs to be there, it needs to be digital. All of those things need to change for the, the customer's sake. And retailers are a little bit slow to adopt a lot of that stuff. And I'm sort of focusing on this on this storefront experience because yeah. it seems like, in some ways, at least intuitively, it doesn't seem all that evolved, but, yeah. but maybe it has. Like, do you still see, at least at the big bigger chains, some real inefficiencies at play? Yeah, so the supply chain leading up to that store is completely broken. Okay. Um, everything from how much you order from, say, Procter & Gamble or your kind of you know niche vendor that you're, yeah. you're trying out, uh, to how much you ship to your distribution center, to how much you physically send to the store, to how much wastage happens once you get it to the store, if it's fresh foods, that whole process is completely inefficient at retail right now. Um, machine learning AI can completely change that uh, problem. Uh, but then once you actually physically get into the store, the technologies that are available in the physical store, the selfless checkouts, the access to information that the store associates have, um, the access to information for you as a loyalty customer when you check out, that is also completely archaic too. So both those things together make the store experience pretty lackluster right now. Are there some immediate like red flags that you see? Like if you walk in and you see like a discount rack or, or clearance, yeah. does that does that signal to you? Okay, this is a an example where the ordering was wrong or the placement was wrong. Yeah, so we all, I always love looking at certain things. Like uh, I, I look for kind of promotions that are stocked out. Yes. Uh, so if you walk into because that that shouldn't that's not a good sign, right? Yeah. Like if you if you're out of stock for promotional items, then it means one of two things: you either discounted it too aggressively and you left way too much margin on the table, or people are coming in for promotional items and there's no stock available and it's available somewhere else. It's inefficiently allocated. It's at another store, it's at the distribution center or whatever it may be. Either way, you're leaving money on the table. So that's one thing I look for is that how many stockouts are sitting there for promotional items. Yeah. I also take a look at just kind of the, a lot of times fresh produce, there's so much wastage in fresh produce. So I kind of look at just the quality and the kind of, you know, if you're seeing tons of rotten bananas right next to green bananas, there's something wrong in that kind of supply chain and something is being thrown away unnecessarily there, right? So those are interesting things to, to look at. And then I, I also more uh, kind of anecdotally look for when I'm checking out and I know there's a loyalty program, I'm looking for what is that experience like? Is it just kind of like, hey, do you have your loyalty card on you? No, okay, whatever, versus there's actual proactive kind of uh, store associate caring about that loyalty, trying to promote it to you, get you to sign up all. And if that's missing, then clearly loyalty is not that important to the staff at the ground level, even though it's really important to the retailer at the very kind of senior levels, right? So those are interesting things I, I kind of look for. Coming up, how Kerry convinced some of the world's biggest retailers to hand over their most valuable information.
So this is a good point to segue to to where Rubicloud uh, sort of fits mm-hmm. into the picture. First off, the name. Uh, yeah. What what is the origins of? Yeah. So if you think about like a Rubik's cube. Yes. Um, I always love that example because you know if I can solve it now, pretty pretty badly still. But like, okay. if you gave an average person um, the Rubik's cube, they could probably figure out how to solve it in an hour or two, right? YouTube videos or whatever. Yes. Uh, or you, that, that would be cheating, would it not? No, whatever, whatever, <laughs> right? But like, <laughs> okay. it, it would take you an hour to two hours to solve it. Got it. Or you give it to a 13-year-old kid who's a Rubik's cube champion, and they can solve it in like 15 seconds. Yes. Right? So we, we think machine learning AI is kind of similar. You can, you can get to the same outcome with a lot more inefficiency. Or if you built the product, the system, the architecture the right way, you can actually just automate that and basically get the same answer or the best possible answer in seconds. So so that's kind of some of the background for it. Okay. Um, the other version of stories I was just working through kind of combinations of names that that were available on domains with my wife and this one was available. Yeah, yeah no, that makes, that I yeah. think both both are compelling. <laughs> uh, the, other, the other question that I, that I have on that is, uh, machine learning and AI are are those are those synonymous terms? Are they complementary? Are they yeah, is it different? It, there's so many different versions of that of that kind of answer. Um, AI is basically a branch of machine learning. Okay. Um, to to us, what's more important is not whether it's machine learning or AI, but it's the sum of the entire system as a whole. How do you ingest data? How do you host that data in the cloud? How do you build the underlying AI techniques and then actually automate it all? So. Uh, our take on that is a lot of AI is the actual underlying research and the underlying techniques, the underlying methodologies for creating the uh, kind of, you know, the, the math to the problem or to try to solve the problem. The machine learning is around all the automation. How do you actually get that into production? How do you not make yourself a research project? And how do you make yourself a product company? Got it. And it, and you're a, you're a software company, Primarily, when and initially, this reflects sort of. I don't know what it reflects, but initially, when I when I was looking at the company, I thought, oh, Kerry, he went yeah. to Waterloo and he has a yeah. uh, math, computer science, and engineering yeah. degree. That was yeah. where because, yeah. and because of that, you get the software. Yeah. But but that's that's obviously not the case, yeah. right? Um, so was it your was it the comp- computational math mathematician that you brought in that sort of had that piece figured out? Uh, I think it was a combination. So if you look at the first five or six core people in the company, we had a computational mathematician, we had a PhD from U of T uh, that was a machine learning expert. We had uh, kind of a large systems architect from Google and Amazon. We had a uh, a design and product person from Tableau. Uh, so the, the first kind of four or five key people were all uh, we had uh, kind of a, a Watts, a former Watson's kind of architect. Okay. They're they were all specialists in their respective fields, and they all needed to come together to build the early versions of the product because all those fields were necessary to productize something. We weren't a company that the founding team were five professors and researchers in one AI field and nothing else. Right? Yes. We were a pretty diverse group of people. Uh, one of them happened to be business, which was myself, and all the things around kind of people and fundraising and everything that we had to go and do as well. So th- those were the individuals that could advise on the data extraction yeah. piece and uh, particularly as it pertained to, you know, extracting data from legacy yeah. systems, which I know is critical to the yeah. at least the early business model. But presumably there was a uh, it had to be a real sort of compelling sales piece to that where you would go to companies and say retailers and say um uh, we know how to 
extract this yeah. data which you need. Like what came first, the promise or the ability to deliver, or was it sort of a simultaneous? It was always an iteration, right? Like okay. the very early days, uh, I'd call up all of my old contacts at retailers, whether they okay. were big retailers or small retailers, and I would say, just give me any data you're legally allowed to give me as okay. part of your job. Here's a random kind of you know POC document. Sign it. Just give me the data. It's a favor. I need it from you, right? Okay. That was it in the early days. Yes. And then we would iterate and iterate and iterate. And then, you know, by the time we, could, we raised our Series A, it was pretty clear what our product and our market and our kind of direction was going to be. Got it. Okay. Because that was my next question was, yeah. how did you convince retailers to, to give you that yeah. data? Yeah. So the hardest thing in our specific world is um, that first big kind of customer, right? So the first customer willing to give you a significant amount of their data to solve a really big business problem that they feel that they're willing to take a leap of faith on with you. For us, that was a big retailer in France um, that was in the health and beauty space. Uh, and we had this kind of perfect moment where we had a, a kind of an early version of a product, a vision and a direction we wanted to go. And they had a very acute problem that they that matched what we were trying to, to solve. Okay. Uh, and if you don't have that in enterprise software company, it really doesn't matter how much money you raise. It doesn't matter how great of a product you have. You have no early customer validation. And we're in a pretty heavy space in that, you know, our products are usually pretty uh, kind of, you know, big implementations, a lot of commitment from the customer. And we're fundamentally changing a business process that we think you need to change. And the industry now thinks that you need to change. But it's not this kind of downloadable widget that anybody can, you know, go and download and within five minutes you're using it, right? So it's a it's an enterprise sale. I was assuming that your initial foray would have been into the sort of Canadian grocery chains because yeah. as we know, there's sort of a dearth of Canadian retailers, right? I mean, yeah. There's Lululemon, there's Aritzia. I mean, there's yeah. a handful, but yeah. there's not... Uh, most of are not Canadian. Um, how is it? How is it? A French company was yeah. First? So uh, one of the secrets to RubyCloud has always been we have an un, uh, amazing what I call bench of advisors. Yeah. Okay. Um, whether they're you know advisors from retail, advisors from big tech stories or uh, sorry tech companies, uh, we've had this kind of group of advisors that's kept evolving over the years. So the early uh, intros came from a lot of our advisors, investors, and kind of close you know people on the bench. Um, ironically. Our first customers were in France, the UK, Hong Kong, and the US. And we didn't really uh, start winning Canadian customers until about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, it wasn't by design. It was just because that's where our advisors, investors, and our own personal networks uh, had access to, to potential customers. So early days, you're, you're kind of hustling and, and kind of you know trying to basically go wherever you can to, to find your earliest customers and our natural places landed there. It was never like a design or, or anything strategic like that. And, and, and not to get too granular, but just yeah. uh, just interested from a business execution perspective, once you had secured this uh, French company, was the next step going and hiring a bilingual person that you could then plant in that company? Like, how did you, how did you even sort of execute against expectations? Uh, yeah, that was an interesting one. So, so a few things we learned very early on being a global company with global customers was uh, the kind of the customer experience, customer success teams were just as important as the product that you were delivering or the business model you're delivering it on. So uh, 
that particular client was very kind of English run. Okay. So we were a little bit lucky there, but there's still the need to understand kind of French culture, French business practices, et cetera. So that was a great lesson for us, right? And since then, now that we have customers in like nine different countries, we take that into account. It's like if we're taking a customer live in Taiwan, we make sure that language is not a barrier. We make sure that, you know, we learn about the business culture before we go in and understand that and a lot of those things. And that's kind of ingrained into our CS team now, so. And does there need to be buy-in at the company level? Not, of course, a, across every sort of facet, but in in terms of touch points, yeah, to to extract that data, um, or is it really sort of as long as you have one person on board who can provide you everything you need, you're 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 fine to operate. Yeah, no. What's complicated about what we do, but the, the flip side is what makes us also sticky is that we end up working with many different groups within that retailer, right? So, and now we've developed really good personas for what the kind of success metrics and ultimate kind of goals are of the different personas. So we'll work with IT to get the data out. We'll work with the C-suite to understand strategic objectives, the goal of the project, the actual financial return of the project, because that's really important for us to model ourselves to financial returns. We'll work with the merchandising teams and the marketing teams who are the actual users of the product on the day-to-day basis. So we have so many different kind of parts of the organization. Retail is also in many cases a family-run business. Yes. So there's, you know, 250 retailers in the world that control 80% of that spending. Uh, A large amount of those 250 retailers are family-owned, like privately held family-owned businesses. So we also understand the personas of these large retail families trying to modernize their businesses, trying to take their businesses to this next evolution where machine learning, cloud, IoT, all these buzzwords need to be translated into reality, into strategies, into products, into real, you know, systems in their in their companies. Yeah, no, it's so compelling. Um, but I could see like even just operating in a company like this, pulling data, yeah. it, it you know, it can be a nightmare because you know, this person's very responsive and yeah. believes in the mission, but that person over there isn't. And isn't didn't read the email and it's not really why do you yeah. want this and no I'm not going to give this to you and how yeah. how did you sort of how do you navigate that or do you do you have like okay the CEO or the CIO has to sort of send out a directive like you will adhere to yeah this? the the one part that I think always does not get enough credit or gets overshadowed when talking about all these machine learning companies is that the data extraction the data ingestion the the human people process of working with IT on the other side to get data out, it is both a project management problem as much as it is a kind of technical problem. So uh, fortunately for us, now we understand all of the systems. We've pretty much seen enough of them now. Early days, it was very hard. It was very much uh, the, the model of choice in the early days is let us ship some people to your team. Yes. Right. And, um, and we'll that, figure it out. And we'll figure it out together. Um, now we're pretty good in that we have kind of pretty standard templates. We know the systems all. Uh, the good thing is now there's not, it's an 80-20 rule kind of, you know, yes. uh, okay. in terms of the, non, the types of systems that retailers are running. So yes. we've kind of gotten through that hump. But early days, it was very much, yeah, we've got three people. We'd love to just park them. Do you have desks for them? Yes. And that's part of being the practical side of it. And, and a big part of it is also the the value to the customer, right? Because a lot of times retailers are working on these large projects with these legacy vendors, and just the data extraction process can take two years because it's inefficient. Yes. And they don't have a kind of very startup mentality where they go, well, let us just ship three engineers, give them seats, carve off two of your people for the next three months, and let them figure it out. 
So yeah. early days, we were working on a lot of that uh, as a model. On on that sort of convincing the company's piece, was it? I can see part of it is an investment of time and effort yeah. and energy and and obviously some capital. But the other one, which I would think would even be of greater risk, even though this you know NDAs and all of that is the sensitivity of that data, yeah. right? And yeah. particularly with family-run companies. So we're, yeah. we're giving these guys in Toronto mm-hmm. all of our information. Yeah. I mean, if it's a private company, like, yeah, no. Absolutely. So first of all, we don't get uh, customer identifiable information. Sure, sure. So if we do get loyalty data, all we would know you as is hash X2345. And yes. we have no ability to, to map that to your name, your email, your home phone number, any of that kind of information. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Even then, you know, the type of data we get is, of course, it's sensitive. It's transactional data. It's, you know, uh, it has to be treated with a lot of respect. And there's a few variables. There's the technical part of it, which is we run that data in very specific virtual infrastructures on cloud deployments in the regions that you're only allowed to house that data in, right? Okay. So we've got clients in nine countries. We've got an equal amount of deployments across the three different cloud providers in those nine countries. That's the beauty of this 2018 world we live in, I can deploy and move data, you know, uh, and work with a customer in France and never need to have data leave France because of the yes. way that Microsoft Azure, AWS are set up there. Yes. Um, second thing is just this kind of industry shift that's happened in the last four or five years. Um, when we started the company, people were really worried about giving data out. Yes. Now it's the expectation is not we were not worried about giving data out. It's that if we don't use our data to our advantage, we're probably going to lose. Yes. And yes. there's nowhere where that's more acute right now uh, and solvable than in retail. And the it's kind of now the cost of, in many cases, winning or survival because the keys to fixing a lot of your problems are in your data. And it's just how you use that to actually figure out you know your, your solutions, right? So the acceptance that you have to use your data now and the chances of you doing that only in your environment and never letting it go is is no longer uh, kind of an industry norm. So there's the data extraction piece, which obviously is critical. That's the foundation. Yeah. But then there's the, the interpretation yeah. of that data. And then the next step is the, the predictive yeah. component. Did you always envision providing sort of the full suite of... No, the early days was very much just, let's be the best data extraction company for retail. And then we'd give it back. And we give it back to the retailer and they can now finally figure out what they need to do with this data. Yes. Um, what we've realized over the kind of, you know, the, the last four or five years was that the retailers are looking for a whole holistic solution. They want, they don't care about the data. They don't care about AI. They don't care about machine learning. They want to solve a business problem. Yeah. I've got an inventory stockout issue I need addressed. I've got a loyalty profitability problem. I've got a loyalty growth problem. I've got a, you know, a, a kind of a, a problem in launching private label products and I don't know how to launch them effectively or profitably. So you have to build products to solve big, big challenges that retailers care about. And that's when we realized that we needed to build both the prediction machine learning layer around those problem sets and then the applications on top of that so that the users could actually interact with it and actually make it part of their day-to-day workflow. So then in, in terms of the, the competitive set for you, do you see your competition today being like the Baines and the McKinsey's of the world that, that essentially... They, they wouldn't necessarily have anywhere near the, the sort of the technology 
but they have the 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 bench strength in terms of okay we've we've seen a thousand retail companies yeah. we've seen we've seen this problem over and over again yeah. this is the solution yeah our our competition is and on the one hand those legacy consulting firms um, that have a broken business model to to be first and foremost and secondly a uh, a kind of a, an outdated way of solving the problem, right? Let's throw bodies and minds at the problem when okay. when machine learning, AI, and kind of self-learning systems can do a better job. The second is the kind of legacy technology companies, right? Those kind of large conglomerate technology companies that are used to operating on the model, pay me $20 million, I'll give you hardware up front, and then we'll custom develop applications on the back end for the next two to five years. The biggest problem with both those models is it takes way too long. And the forget the fact that the the solutions aren't as good as the new world that we live in, but they just take way too long. And in retail, in two to five years, your whole world can change. In retail, in, in two to five months, your whole whole world can change right now. So the time to value doesn't exist in that old world. I always tell retailers when I meet them that if you're old, you used to be able to say at a retailer, oh, my stack is Oracle and let's say kind of, you know, McKinsey. You can't say that anymore. The reality now is you've got to say, my stack is Oracle and McKinsey, Google, Microsoft, AWS, RubiCloud, Startup 2, Startup 3, Startup 4, and Salesforce. The the kind of world of technology providers you need to bring into your company now is completely different as a retailer and in every industry. And we're going through this transition where you still need to have those legacy systems but you also need now to devote your time and your new energy to all of this new stack that's coming out. And it's not just RubyCloud, it's all these other startups, all these big players like Amazon and Google and Microsoft and Salesforce that are actually the ones innovating. The kinds of solutions that you're providing now, is it primarily around pricing or procurement in terms of the, if that's the right term, in terms of, okay, the amount of inventory that should be, yeah. like, is it is it... Is it one or two things, or is it just soup to nuts in terms of the whole the retail experience? So today, the immediate kind of deployable products are, are around kind of three core areas: um, general pricing, uh, promotions, and loyalty and mem- loyalty membership. But what the, those represent is part of a larger roadmap and a larger suite, which includes everything from the assortment that you should be carrying, the frequency you should be replenishing that assortment. So do you have 12 different jams, right? Or does Trader Joe's have the right mentality where they just have two SKUs for every possible type of uh, product and that's it. The introduction of a, of a product when you are trying to launch a new product into that. So the whole, what we call product life cycle is eventually what the roadmap is gonna be able to deliver. Everything from how to price it and how to promote it and how to allocate it uh, which is today, to what do you promote, what do you carry, and when should you retire that that product? You've talked about the importance of being a Canadian company. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, you're Canadian, and, and I presume your, your uh, co-founders are. Um, the, you know, Toronto has lots to recommend, but presumably you could also be in New York or, or in London or in Hong Kong. Is, yeah. Why Why is it so important to be Canadian? Yeah. So there's a, I'll give you the kind of the, everything I, I do, I, I have like a pragmatic side and I have like a more emotional side, right? So the yes. pragmatic answer is, well, there's just an abundance of talent of uh, kind of government support and of kind of uh, educational kind of supply in, in Toronto specifically, Ontario specifically, and then throughout Canada. Um, that makes just practical sense to be here. Um, but the emotional side of it is why 
the hell would I move to a different city when this is my home, right? Yes. That's the the honest emotional answer to this. This is, you know, Toronto is in the top five, no matter what thing you read yes. uh, of cities to build a software company in. So that's enough for me, right? Like if if we were in like, if we weren't even on the radar of cities to go build a tech company, then yeah, you you should make the argument that you need to move. But yes. when you're when you're in the kind of epicenter of the best cities in the world, then there's no reason to uproot your life. Build the city where your home is, or sorry, build the company where your home is. And I'm a big believer in that. So, is, and just sort of finally, is there a is there a segment of the market that you haven't been able to to crack yet that you're sort of for 2019, 2020? Is it, do you think in terms of sort of segments or do you think in terms of geography or is it a combination of both? Yeah. So geographically, we're pretty diverse. We've got okay. offices down in London, throughout the States and uh, in Hong Kong, and we've got geographies covered, I think, uh, for, for the most part. Um, one area we really want to get, we're really getting excited about is is the area of fast fashion and just fashion in general. Okay. Um, because the the problems that exist in fashion, especially if you're vertically integrated, like a Lululemon or you know anybody that produces their own products, um, you have a very different problem. It's not about pricing, promotions, or membership. In many cases, it's 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 about how much do you produce to begin with, right? How um, the problem set goes much much further back into that supply chain. How much raw material do you buy? Um, how do you finance that raw material? How do you finance that production? Or, And then how do you respond to the really fast-moving trends that happen in the world today? Some Instagram influencer might come out with a limited kind of you know pop-up store, and suddenly that's the latest trend, whereas before that might have just been a blip. Now that sets off an entire genre of you know fashion that you need to get uh, get your hands around and, and understand. Well, if it takes you six months to produce a t-shirt from start to finish, how are you going to possibly, you know, work in this type of a world? So that problem set is really interesting for us. We know we can solve the the easier parts of that problem, like how much inventory to allocate to the store, what to price it at, all that stuff. But it's the problems further up that supply chain that are really interesting. And then you have all this wastage as a result. If you don't do that properly, you end up literally burning clothing, literally burning handbags, yeah. literally burning shoes. And that's bad as well. So it's a cool problem that we want to get into in the right way versus kind of just, you know, the the kind of little hanging fruit problems. Kerry, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a, a great conversation and, and it's been very informative. Thanks for having me, Noel. This has been great. That was Kerry Liu, founder and CEO of RubaCloud. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and please rate us or leave us a review. It helps us out. You can reach me at nhulsman at oath.com or find me on Twitter at NG Hulsman. And let us know if there's somebody you'd like to hear on this show. I'm Noel Hulsman. This episode was produced by Stephanie Werner. We'll see you next week.